All right. Uh, flip open to Psalm 32. <clears throat> Before we read it, as you're flipping, if someone asked you, what is sin, what would you have to say? What's sin? What'd you say? Yeah, right. Most of my life. Every breath. Uh, yeah, that would be, okay, good. The human condition. Okay. Now, would a postmodern understand that? Good, that's getting better. Uh, would you say it a different way, or would you just say separation from God? Well, I know, I'm trying to nudge you to say it a different way. <laughs> yeah, good. Yes, and the reason these go hand in hand, broken relationship and the human condition, is because the first broken relationship is obviously in Eden, right? Yeah, good. So here's Eden. Eden's a big place. How, how would you describe Eden? What was it like? <laughs> okay. How would, you describe, how would you describe perfection? What does it look like? If you're Adam and Eve, what, is, what does Eden look like? Yes, it's beautiful. Good. So there's beauty. Yeah, no timeouts. Are there red lights in Eden, you think? Okay, good. Only green lights, right? <laughs> or maybe no lights. Yeah, right. Okay, what else, though? It's beauty. No timeouts. Order. Yes, that's off. That's very good. What you see in Haiti is anti-Eden. Why? Because it's chaos, Right? That's part, of the, that's part of the reason you pray that all the folks who die in Haiti come to the fullness of Eden made new. Because their last vision on earth is chaos, and their next vision should be order, right? What else? Yeah. Yes, good. Now, there are only a few people in Eden, right? So who's the community with? Adam and Eve have community with God, right? So this gets to your relationship point. Relationship. So relationships in Eden are with God and really with each other, right? And then for all of us, with the world or with other folks, okay? What else about Eden? Yeah, good. There's peace, harmony, right? Everyone has great communion together. What about safety? Is it dangerous in Eden? No, right? So safe. Someone said joy. That's good. What else? I'm sorry? Yes. I never quite know what serenity means. Good. So peace, order, calm. Anything else? Yeah, right. What would that be like today? May, yeah, we'll just write down San Diego, okay? Not like Florida anymore. I just talked to a guy who goes down to Florida to get out. He actually, what's that? Believe me, it's not South Dakota. <laughs> South Dakota looks more like, 
Yeah, hell than anything else, okay? Yes. What else? Anything else you'd notice about Eden? These are all things you see in the first couple chapters of Genesis, right? I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot to see that all these things are present, right? But sin is broken relationship, particularly here with God and with each other. So this is Eden. Remember what happens as soon as they fall from sin? Where do they go? Outside, right? So suddenly they go from here out to here. And you remember what happens? Who stands at the door? Yeah, angel with the flaming sword. Uh, it'd be bad enough if it was just an angel, but an angel with a flaming sword, which basically means you're not coming back in the same way you went out, right? And ultimately, uh, it's not only broken relationship, but I would say it's broken humanity. Eden is the fullness of what it means to be a human being, okay? The fullness of what it means to be a human. This is the way humans are created, for community, for peace, for order, for joy, for safety, for harmony, for beauty, for San Diego climate, right? This is the way human beings are created. So when you sin, broken relationship, you've not only broken your relationship with God and with each other, but it's broken humanity. In other words, the fall into sin means that humans aren't fully humans. Now the reason I'm telling you this is, we're going to see this in the psalm today. Okay, this is what you're going to see in the psalm. Now, the goal of the Christian life is to get you where? That's fascinating you say that. So after the service, after the service on Sunday, 7.45, I don't actually know if people are awake at 7.45, but apparently they are. So after the service in the narthex, I see someone I've never seen before, and uh, it's, always, it's, always, it's always a little odd when someone you've never seen before sort of like with intent, comes up, I don't know if this person's going to pull a gun on me or what, and she says, thank you for that sermon. Now, again, when someone says thank you and they're kind of yelling at you, not going to go so well, okay? It wasn't like, hey, thanks for that. It was kind of like, finally. So she says to me, finally, you preached a good sermon. Now, yeah, exactly. Now, see, some of you are sitting there thinking, he's really exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, and I said to this woman, do I know you? Which was my first mistake. She said, I'm a member here. I said, I've never seen you before. I said, what's your name? She said, well, I'm not a member here, but I come a lot. I said, really? She said, you know what your problem is? This is now she's talking to me. Your problem, and people are starting to kind of gather around because who doesn't like to see a good fight? <laughs> Especially when it's the pastor and some person they've never seen before because who knows what I'm going to do. She says, you know what your problem is? Finally, you preached about going forward. All I ever hear at St. John is we're going back to Eden. We're going back to Eden. Finally, you preached about going forward. The sermon's here. You know what the problem with the sermon's here? And I finally said to her again, tell me, what's your name again? I have no idea who you are. So but that would be like, you know, me walking to, where's, where's uh, that'd be like me walking to Tammy's doctor and saying that's not the way you do that, right? Yeah, so what's the doctor going to say? Security. In the church we say, hey, would you like to join? Could vote too. That'd be great. So this woman says to me, this is not the way we're supposed to talk. It's not about going back to Eden. What she misunderstood was going back to Eden doesn't mean you turn around and walk back to Eden. As Richard John Newhouse said, may his soul rest in peace, the way to Eden is not the way of return. It is the way restored. Okay? So Eden is actually now ahead of us, not behind us. It's the way restored. 
So the goal in life is to get back to Eden, or for this woman, I hope she's listening, to get forward to Eden. Either way, you're getting to Eden. And her claim was, if you read Revelation, you don't see, you, you see the New Jerusalem. To which I said, have you ever looked at the New Jerusalem? It resembles Eden. Four rivers, trees that give out oil. I mean, you got all this stuff going on. That's what Eden is like. Okay? So, basically, that was one long lead until I could tell you I was on Sunday. <laughs> but now I got it off my chest, so I'm done. All right. Any questions? You do know her first name. Well, that's good. Hopefully she comes back. Um, what's that? I'm sorry? I hope so. That'd be great. I'd love to have a call. I said to her, my last words were, I love you. I hope you come back. To which she said, great pastoral care, and slammed the door. I said it just like that. I love you. I hope you come back. But whatever. I can't, you know, you can't, you can't help everybody. So, Psalm 32 on that happy note. Psalm 32. All right. Now, somebody, somebody asked for this. It was you. That's good. This goes south. You can come stand up here. Psalm 32. Anybody read this before? Yeah, it's always, it, it reveals a bit of someone's character, not in a bad way, maybe in a good way, when the penitential psalms are sort of the ones they know. Right? How many penitential psalms are there? Aren't there six? Are there six? I was hoping someone would know. Six? Six would be a good number for penitential psalms because it's sort of the number of brokenness. Uh, but anyways, this is the second penitential psalm, all right? It's a psalm of David. You, you know, you maybe have heard it before. There are bits of the liturgy in here, so some of this will sound familiar. Let me read it once and then just tell me what comes to mind. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Okay? So... What did you hear? What are the things that popped into your head? Anything. There are no wrong answers. Yeah. Yes. So the Lord's job is to forgive. Good. What else? In this psalm, is there more about sin or more about grace? Yeah, there's probably more about grace. Now, the sin bit is maybe longer in length, you know, in, in number of verses. But the grace bit is weightier in content. Okay? So it's about sin and grace. What else is it about? Someone is sin, David. The Lord is merciful. 
But in between, what's the next step? What's the step between sin and mercy? Repentance. Yeah, confession, repentance. So in some sense, in this psalm, you have a couple themes going on. Sin, repentance, mercy, and new life. All in one psalm. And his, his last word is always new start, right? New life, new starts, new believers, new life. Okay? Now, Pastor Bruzek talked to you about the circle of anger. I wake up in the middle of the night. Nightmares about the circle of anger. anger. And then I don't know if that's... Well, never mind. But in some sense, in the scriptures, and probably the clearest example of this is Numbers 21. Remember what happens in Numbers 21 with the snakes in the wilderness? Who knows the story? It's a great story. Yes. Yep. Yes. So they sin. Yes. So they sin. There's repentance. Lord, we shouldn't have done this. There's mercy on the Lord. What does he do? He sends the... He, he, he gives them one bronze snake. There's forgiveness. It's all right now. And forgiveness is new life. Okay? And it's sort of lived this way, right? Sin, repentance, mercy, forgiveness. Now, if you miss any of these steps, it's not, it doesn't actually lead you back to where you want to be, which is new life. Now, where do you think most Christians get hung up? What's that? Yeah, it could be, in, it depends on what end, it depends on if you're the sinner or the one who's been sinned against. Okay, if you're the one who's sinned against, if you steal ten bucks from me, where am I going to have the hardest trouble? Mercy, right? Just like, you know, if I was really merciful, I wouldn't have told you the story this morning. You missed it. It was a good one. Tearjerker, actually. I'll tell you later. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, in some sense, not being able to forgive yourself is having your own idol, right? The idol is preconceived notions of yourself, your sin, your pride, whatever it may be. But you hear that all the time. The Lord's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. That's an idol, right? That's an idol. So yeah, you're right. In some instances, the forgiving yourself is the difficult part, right? Keep going, though. Let's say you're, okay, so you're the one who sinned. But where do most people get hung up here? Most people, I think, <laughs> they think this is great. Ah, yeah, you know, I... But you forgave me. Isn't this wonderful? Where do people most get, get most hung up? Yeah, what does repentance mean? This is the sticky point right here. Yeah, metanoia in the Greek, it means to actually turn around. I mean, it's a physical thing. So you're walking one way, and you turn around and walk Another way, right? Now, what are sort of some telltale signs that someone is struggling with repentance? Yeah, it might be, it might even be, yes, it might be more subtle than that too, but continue to do the same thing so they can't get actually sort of past this point. This is their dead stop right here. So they're in the sin, they can't get past the repentance. But have you ever heard somebody say, gosh, I really screwed up, I'm very sorry for that, uh, it appears to be a great repentance, and quickly then, they are right back to, to the sin. Okay? Now, th there's a difference here. There's a difference between sort of being 
sort of struggling with the same sin over and over and over again. I, I know someone who, I, wasn't gonna, I was going to say was an alcoholic, is an alcoholic. And unfortunately, uh, this person lived very close to a little liquor store. And he said, I used to go out in my backyard. I told myself I wasn't going to drink. I'd go out in the backyard, I'd see the liquor store, and I couldn't help but go. Now that's very different than, you know what, forget about forgiveness and mercy, I'm going back to this again. That's struggling. But have you ever heard somebody who sort of, you know, blows up or gets angry or gets upset or sins against you and says, I'm so, so sorry, and then the next week, the same thing happens again. Okay? The same thing happens again. And that's sort of a telltale sign that folks haven't gone past repentance all the way to mercy, which means they're still stuck right here. The scary part is that means there's no mercy and there's no forgiveness and there's no new life. Yeah, it's more difficult. Yes. Yes, right. Yeah, the difficult thing is, and this is almost like pastoral care, you have to presume the best in people. So I'll give, I'll give you an example. You, it's, you don't want to read hearts, which was a helpful thing by AOR. They said, don't read hearts. So you saying, or me saying, they didn't really mean that, isn't the way we operate. However, at the same time, <laughs> the scriptures say, bear fruit that befits repentance, which means give signs to the world that you're actually repentant. And reading the signs is what Jesus and the biblical authors do all the time. So there, that's a fine line between saying, I really don't think you mean that, or, you know, you've done that to me 12 times now. Exactly. Exactly. So the trick is helping people along. However, when you're the one who's been sinned against, it's very difficult to bring someone through repentance, <laughs> right? You need a friend. You need someone else to go and say, that's really not how we live. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you hear it, you even hear it this way. I'm going to do it and ask for forgiveness. Guess what? That's just how I am. Or, if it appeared that I was angry, I'm very, very sorry. Appeared? If it appeared, then who's at fault? Me. Yeah. Then it's on me, not on you. Yeah, exactly. So we're not good at, one, confessing, and two, well, not good at recognizing and then actually confessing. And this is the same thing the psalmist struggles with. The reason I'm telling you this is, this psalm is here for a reason. He struggles with recognizing his own sin, moving through repentance, receiving mercy and forgiveness, and starting over. That's why all these psalms, so many of them say, why is this happening to me? And then you get to two psalms later and he says, okay, Lord, you're merciful, you know? And this doesn't happen overnight. He doesn't write all the psalms in two days. This is years of his life. Okay, it's what you experience, it's what I experience. But the trick is, in order to get to mercy, forgiveness, and new life, and new life is the equivalent of Eden, in order to get to Eden, you have to get through the repentance point. And just doing the same thing over and over again and not caring is not going through repentance. And, and here's the scary thing. It's not just about not going through repentance. There's no mercy, and there's no forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Be because it's still this. It's still broken humanity and still broken relationships. Until a person gets through repentance, relationships cannot be restored. And that's funny how we think about that. We have a, we have a beef with somebody. We say, uh, don't worry, you'll get over it. 
Actually, you don't get over it until you move through here. That's the key to restored relationships, restored humanity. Okay? Yes, Beth. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, spiritual warfare affects you at all five points. It just depends on who you are, the sinner or the sinned against, and sort of what your own personal struggles are. For some people, it's this point, either being merciful or receiving mercy. For some people, it's this point. But at all points, until you get back actually to here, spiritual warfare is going on. And you want to, you want to stay firm at this point. That's where you want to rest. Exactly. Because the new life point, staying put at the new life point, is actually not staying put. It's actually going forward. Okay? That's, that's the funny thing. You want to stay put here because this point moves you to Eden. If you stay put at any of these, you don't move at all. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you start off at the new life point, and within about three minutes, you're already to the sin point, right? <laughs> I mean, what kid, if anybody says kids don't have original sin, just look at how selfish they are, right? Two minutes after you baptize the kid, he wants to eat, and if you don't feed him, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's sin, okay? <laughs> that's, that's sort of a curved, uh, a curved will. It's curved in on yourself. Okay, that makes sense? Yes, Donna. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yep. Yep, right. Yeah, and it's for some people they don't know it's a sin. So they have to first recognize that it's a sin. Especially this is like with unbelievers or with people who have just come to the church. They don't know that some things are wrong. I get people all the time who come in who are new to the church and they say we want to get married here and you say, "Are you li-? I mean, I just kind of presume you live together." They have there's no sense that that's wrong. Now, that's not necessarily their fault, but they first have to recognize that's wrong before they'll repent, <laughs> right? But for you and for me, it's a little different. We oftentimes know it's wrong, and we just sort of enjoy it a little too much, right? And we don't know what, yeah. Because admitting it means you completely expose yourself, right? I mean, you expose yourself for who you are and what you've done. Um, and we especially, it's very easy to admit sins to the Lord. Uh, not easy. It's easier than it is to actually go face-to-face with someone who, has, who you, you know, you've sinned against and say, I'm very sorry. That's why Matthew 18 is so difficult for people. I can almost guarantee every person who struggled with Matthew 18 in the past year has confessed that sin to the Lord. But guess what? You also have to go to the person you've sinned against. So that's the struggle. Okay? Now... Uh, look back at Psalm 32. There is this idea, um, at least in verse 2, that your sins sort of cover you, right? They sort of, so when the Lord looks at you, here's the Lord up in heaven, and here's you and me, damn sinners. What he sees in your sin is, he doesn't see you, he doesn't see a human being, he sees sin. And then you see in Romans, St. Paul uses this language of, you know, he's clothed you with, with righteousness, with love. So when Jesus finally gifts you, and you can get through repentance onto mercy, suddenly this changes not from sin, but to grace. Or Christ, when the Father sees you, he sees his Son. Okay? 
So there's this language of exchanging one thing for another. David is covered in sin, and the Lord covers him in righteousness. Okay? Yes. Uh, yes. Good. Yep. Yeah, but the, yes, he does. Good. He still looks as good as a child once you're baptized, but the image gets a little blurred. <laughs> okay? It's like, you know, when, I was going to say dirty kids, actually. Uh, dirty glasses works. It's like Emma. I always know she's my daughter. But there are some days when she comes in and is so covered in, I don't know what. You can guess. Uh, that you often say, like, is that really my kid? I know it is, but it's difficult to see. Okay? So you're right. You never stop being his kid unless you tell him, I really would rather be someone else's kid. And at that point, he doesn't see you as his own. He sees you as yourself. And that's the scariest thing. Because as yourself is precisely what Donna said she has trouble with, which is recognizing who she really is. You don't want to see the Lord to see you as yourself. You want him to see you as his son. The Lord has one son. And all of you who are baptized are part of that son. Okay? But you're right. But this gets a little blurred. It's like when we drew up here on Eden, you know, you sort of walk further and further away every time you sin, and until you get through the repentance point, you just get closer and closer to the edge. And eventually, I mean, well, I said this to the joy group once. I said, you know, all of you think this is sort of a scary place to be, but when you get there, it's kind of fun. I mean, have you ever gone to, like, Niagara Falls and looked over the edge and thought, I wonder what it'd be like to roll in the barrel over the edge? Not you? You're a little more pious than me. I go to the edge, and I say, in fact, I can remember convincing my parents as a kid that we had to take the boat ride down in the Niagara Falls because I wanted to see how close we could get to the falls without dying. I mean, that's, a, that's sin, right? Let's see how close I can get. And sometimes you might just walk one step too far, and boom. That's the fear in precisely what you've described. You're here, and until you repent, you just move closer and closer to the edge until eventually... You might go right over. And repentance then, turning around, brings you right back to the center of Eden. I think part of, part of the acid test there for you, Leslie, is that um, the reason you always know you're seen as part of the sun, despite what you do, is that uh, in response to your sin, you're either forgiven and just let go, you're given a free pass, or you're punished, but not to your destruction. If you weren't seen as, a, as, as the child of God, then, then you have to suffer the destruction of the cross on your own. Uh, and that never comes to you. Instead, you're wrapped up into the cross of Christ, which is why people can always say of their suffering, it's the way we prayed this morning, that your suffering is drawn into the suffering of Christ because on the far side of that suffering is always, always resurrection. Right. So the difference is not to be baptized is to be seen for who you are all alone, and therefore the end is destruction, as opposed to being seen for who you are with all your sadnesses and troubles, and yet to be in Christ. And so, and, and I think people fail to realize this, um, you know, we're often punished, moved, bent, shaped, uh, in the way that you would, the, the child analogy works well, in the way that you'd punish a child so that they don't continue to do the same old thing. And you might analyze our entire last year together as um, perhaps being taught that we ought not to do things that we used to do, 
and that we ought to start doing things that we didn't used to do. I would suggest that one of the most difficult things, one of the things I've observed in our confessions over the past year is the paucity of them. That is, people can do horrible things over long periods of time, very publicly, and then think that they can say, I'm sorry, and that's the end of it. I mean, what you need to do, and what the, what the catechism teaches you to do, is make a laundry list of what you've done. Commandment by commandment, confess that to the person, and if you've done it publicly, confess it publicly, and real honestly, I was thinking about, I was actually thinking about this with regard to the psalm this morning, about doing penance. If I say to you that you all should do penance, you would all, you know, get your Catholic rash. But what you should, in fact, do is make restitution. Because if you rob the bank across the way and come to private confession, we walk you back and tell the money. If you've ruined a person's reputation by lying, what you should do is stand up in front of the congregation and say, I'm a liar. And I know I can never undo that, but I'm a liar, and I've said horrible things over the past year I should have never said. They weren't true. Uh, one of the interesting things in the AOR report is how many things that were said for which they delicately said there was no evidence or support given. You know? so, so part of it is, is that what has classically been known as penance. Um, now we, we flinch at that because we don't want the notion that we're earning our forgiveness fair enough, but if we use restitution as the Lutheran way. Uh, so we, so we, we're, we're, we're very poor at confessing as equally poor as we are at forgiving. So. And the penance point drops in here and not here. It comes at a different Yes, point. right. It comes at so the this end. So is, this is the Catholic Exactly point, right. We're squared up. And this is the Lutheran Exactly. Point. That's exactly this is right. Just saying, this is just living in forgiveness. Absolutely and right. And this is earning forgiveness. If you're There's starting, no, there, exactly. Penance in and of itself is not wrong. Exactly. It's where you place it in the mix. Exactly. If you're, if you're, if you're sorry about punching somebody in the nose, right. part, of, part of being sorry is you stop punching them in the nose. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. All right, go back to your psalm. Now, it's fascinating, the progression here that the psalmist uses from sort of full humanity, hurt by sin, humanity that's sort of fallen apart and being shattered, to at some point then being subhuman, being an animal, he actually says. So look here, so he starts off, so you presume that David at some point in his life is fully human. Right? He's been circumcised, brought into the kingdom, whatever it may be. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That is, to be fully human. However, once sin incurs, and this is your point, Donna, about how long this lasts, look at what he says here about the human condition. For when I kept silent, that means when I didn't confess, when I didn't repent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That actually says in the Hebrew, my vitality, my life. Which shows you that sin not only affects you spiritually, it also affects you physically. You ever seen this? People who have been so caught up in sin, unwilling to recognize it, who everything else in their life falls apart. <laughs> I mean, you've seen this, right? Their marriage falls apart, their health falls apart, their mind falls apart. Everything falls apart, and then suddenly when they're restored to community, what's happened? What happens? Oftentimes, things get better. This shows you that we're not Gnostics. It's not just about what you do in your soul. And you'll see in a minute, it's actually about how you live in your body. So the psalmist says, I thought I could just get away with this. I thought I could just lie in my bed at night and not think about it. And what happened? My bones wasted away, and my vitality was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
mean, that is, that's unbelievable. Okay? However, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, the most difficult part. I did not cover my iniquity. This is like in the, in the Gospels where uh, the woman's caught in adultery. That means she's actually caught in the act. In some sense, that's what you do when you confess your sin. You, you catch yourself in the act and you tell the Lord, here I am. <laughs> that's it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you, the Lord, forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly... So now David moves from himself to everyone else, to all of you and to me. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, meaning the Lord has always saved me. What am I worried about? And now the Lord speaks, verse 8. So you notice now the personal pronouns have changed. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That's actually life stuff. That's what Pastor Bruzik just said. This is the penance stuff. The Lord actually says, now that you move from sin to exposure, through repentance, to mercy, to forgiveness, now I'm going to tell you how to live. So the final word, and you have to to hear this correctly, the final word is not forgiveness. The final word is not forgiveness. You're not forgiven and then it's over. Forgiveness is the first word of a new life. That's why at 12 o'clock here, what's the point? New life. So the psalmist says, you've sinned, I've sinned, I've repented, he's been merciful, he's forgiven me, and now the Lord says to me, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Yes. Yeah. Right. I wonder, I wonder whether it's uh, he can't be found or David can't find him. I don't know if it's that he can't be found. It might be that David isn't doing a good job at finding him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you ever talked to people who have um, sort of committed, I mean, no sin is different, although, as I said last week, there are, in some respects, there should be a distinction between mortal and venial sin. Some do harm people more than others. But have you ever talked to people who have committed sort of grave sins And what they said was, in the act of whatever it may have been, drug use, whatever, they were on such a high that they couldn't recognize anything else around them. That may be what David's experiencing here. He's he's so caught up in his own sin and, and the pleasure of it that he actually can't recognize even the Lord himself. Um, well, I'll save that for Sunday. So, yes, uh... So there is a point at which someone is so caught up in sin that they actually can't recognize their surroundings or uh, their spouse or their kids or whatever it may be. And that may be what's going on here. What you've just described even more. It's like a runner's high, but for sin. Okay? Everybody okay? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and remember, when you have the devastation, it's not the Lord who's causing it. You have to imagine that yeah, well, I don't even, I, I want to be careful about saying he leads you into the devastation. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yep. I agree. And so what you have to see is, and I know this, this image is sort of overdone. We always say, oh, you know, 
We sing it, we sing it uh, every, almost every baptism. Cradling children in his arms, Jesus grants his blessing, right? So there's this image of the father always has his arms around his children. And what you have to see is uh, when, you're, when you're so caught up into sin that there's devastation, um, it's not like he says to the devastation, why don't you come and harm my child? For a moment, you say, I really want to play outside of your arms. And he says, if that's really what you want, I'll let you go. And you walk outside, and he closes it back up. And then you say, that's not too much fun. And he opens it back up and says, come back inside now. Same thing with the snakes in the wilderness. He's holding the snakes back. And they say, we really want that. And he says, if that's what you want. So it's very different. And even in the Hebrew, you don't always notice the nuance in the English. In the Hebrew, he never causes those things to happen. He allows them to happen, which is very different than causing it. But you're right, he then uses what's happened to you to bring you to a point where you're ready to say, I'm very, very sorry, I never should have done that, be merciful to me, forgive me, and let's have a fresh start together, back with inside your arms. Yeah, right. He's always ready. Yeah. That's why the prodigal son is so helpful, because the father's out waiting. That's how the Lord is, right? Yes. In the last year of this church, uh, yeah, the history of the Lutheran Church is a scary history. <laughs> uh, so what does this tell us about the history of the Lutheran Church? Ooh. You hope we're better than the psalm. That's what it tells us. Uh, well, what it tells you is this is the life of every Christian, and um, at times there's not only personal sin, there's corporate sin. So an entire church body can sometimes move through this entire circle, Right? We've seen our own struggles with that. And you can look at other churches and see their own struggles with that. The point from getting, to getting from sin to repentance is a very difficult thing. It's hard for a whole church body to actually repent. And oftentimes, sometimes they do, uh, but usually it's just kind of various members who say, we're not going to do that and we're very sorry. But an entire church body saying, we repent, that's a difficult thing. But all the while, you're right, the Lord still cares for people sort of individually. He still baptizes kids. He does all that kind of stuff. Okay? Now look back at your psalm. Verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Now it's fascinating that he goes from sort of humanity to frail humanity all the way to an animal. Now I led by saying sin... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a basset hound. I led by saying sin is broken relationship. More than that, it's broken humanity. Eden is utterly human. Outside of Eden is broken humanity. And the further you get away from Eden, the more humanity is broken. And sometimes it even appears to be animalistic, right? It even appears to be like an animal. So what you have to see is if you're caught at this point, and you actually see this in people. This is the scary thing. When you're caught at that point, you almost behave like an animal. I mean, let me give you an example. You remember the woman who jumped the fence to get to the Pope on Christmas Eve? Now, how old was that woman? I think she was, old, she was older than 34, I thought. But a woman, let's say she's 50. Let's split the difference. Let's say she's 50. A woman who's 50... Can you imagine her hurtling the fence to get to the Pope like that? No. No. It's almost animalistic. 
And this is what Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, he often says demon possession is animalistic. So what you have to see in this is, if you're stuck here, it's almost to the point of needing an exorcism. If you can't get past that point, it's almost to the point of needing an exorcism. Because life becomes utterly subhuman. It becomes utterly animalistic. It's all about you. It's not about anybody else. And this is why uh, Gustav Wingard, one of the great Lutheran fathers, says, redemption or forgiveness or this point, as he says, lets men be fully men. Let's women be fully women. You talk to a postmodern, why do I come to church? So I can be fully human. Because living in the world and being stuck in this point means you're actually not a human being. You're an animal. Okay? Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, yes, and even James talks this way. James mentions this idea about, you know, dragging a horse along and watch your tongue and curb yourself and... But let me ask you this. Is living just by the rules, you okay? All right. Living just by the rules, is that living at the lowest common denominator or the highest? The lowest common denominator, right? The rules are the bare minimum. That's the very bare minimum. And that's why even here in the text, we'll see in just a minute, what he says is there's a better life ahead. So just living by the rules, just sort of skating by, or as people say, I just want to get to heaven. That's the bare minimum. And the problem is, I think, you talk to, especially to Lutherans, and we've been sort of trained to think in, th- in, think in terms of the bare minimum. I mean, even, even, uh, well, I could, even after the joy group, someone said to me, well, all this stuff you talked about, those aren't matters of salvation, so it doesn't really matter. Well, I mean, what else do you do in your life where you live at the bare minimum? Do you not have pictures on your wall at home? Do you not turn the lights on? Do you not drive a car? Do you not... I mean, the Joy Group all eats the food down here. Let's just take all the food away because it's the bare minimum. I mean, that's kind of, yeah, you can live that way and sort of skate by, but there's no joy, there's no freedom. There are none of these things that you have inside of Eden. And in some sense, you're not fully alive until you finally get to heaven then. Don't you want to be fully alive now? Yeah. Yep. In fact, one of the reasons, and this is actually a good point, one of the reasons Lutherans talk so much in terms of grace covering you, as opposed to grace being inside of you, is because if it covers you, you can do whatever the you want underneath it. But if it's inside of you, it actually changes you. So it's very easy to say, oh, he covered me with righteousness. I can do whatever the heck I want. Guess what? (laughs) You're right here. These are the same people who have the sneaking suspicion that believing in Jesus is going to ruin their fun. Yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, where would you have more fun than you're having right now? It is a, I it's mean, it's, that, it's that old Capon quote about, you know, you know, you, know you, 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 you tie one on, you think that's good time, but he says, like, the, it's like putting your nose in a cheese slicer over yeah. and over. You remember that thing? He's like, you know, waking up the next morning, you're just like, I mean, I'll give you the perfect example. This Sunday's gospel reading is the wedding at Cana. Case in point, Jesus wants to have fun. So, the, yeah, so if you don't see the Christian life as being more enjoyable than life out there, you don't understand what it is to be a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know do you know people like this? Can you bring them to me? I'll tell them what they've done wrong. <laughs> Which is you know what? Which is exactly that's actually there's much more in that statement than he that's, admitted. That's this is the problem with not having spiritual fathers in the church. Exactly where you sit, however old you are, 28, 29. So you've lived your whole life, you know, 28, 29 years, and nobody's ever taught you how to repent. 
And if somebody does teach you how to repent, if a pastor would suggest, oh, I don't know, like the Lutheran confessions do, that they're your spiritual father, and that they should actually, you should actually listen to them and not always say no, which, I don't know, in some West suburban communities is the normal response to anything a pastor would say. Well, I'm fortunate this is all taped. So, uh, you know, that, that we could come to this naturally. You're exactly right. Rule followers are sometimes the hardest cases because deep down they know how hard it's going to be. Right. Because they know the full weight of the rules. Or people who don't follow rules at all, it's like, yeah, they have no idea. Oh, yeah, I did that. And, you know, they move on. But the other person has such a heavy conscience. It's, uh, it's like a kid. It's like an eighth grade boy. You know, they're always protecting themselves because they know how weak they really are. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yep, right. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's like when I was a kid, my mom used to go to work every day and cry because I was so bad. However, in public, I was like an angel because I was a rule follower. You go to church, I, open, I was four, I opened up the hymnal because that's what we did. I had no idea. But the whole time, my mom and my dad knew exactly what I was thinking and exactly what I was doing. And the minute I got out of church, I was a demon. It's no different than here. If you have a spiritual father, you can actually tell what your kids are up to. Yeah. What? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. That's all right. Go, Karen. Go, Karen. You. Yes. Go ahead. I give way to the senator from Illinois. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Yep. Hopefully, so, hopefully you do find some good advice in here, even for your friends and family and all that kind of stuff. Because now you remember, when you deal with people who are close to you, getting them from this point to this point is done, done differently. It's very gentle here. Yes, right. They help everybody, those young ladies back there. Yeah. I know. I, I, I didn't say it. You did. <laughs> All right, Pastor, what did you have? Well, here's the thing. What, where you want to get to in a church is where people can honestly say, this is what I did. And other people can honestly trust them that they're not interested in doing that again. Yeah, right. And that allows you then to be, we have to allow people to be sinners, and we have to allow them to be repentant. Unfortunately, in most churches, because we're so afraid of rules, authority, domination, being honest, because we can't love ourselves, because we can't love other people, because we just like to be covered and we don't like it in us, because we're afraid our fun's being ruled. For all those reasons... We don't live in a place where people can honestly say, I did this wrong and I'm very sorry and I don't want to do it again, which is actually what is institutionalized when we confess. Yeah. And it's exactly what confession absence says, and we have no practical way of understanding that because we understand the church to be about piety as opposed to being repentant and forgiving yep. and making restitution. Yep. So we're so screwed up, and the only way to get through that is actually to have really intensive instruction which is exactly what the Lutheran confessions tell us to do. We teach in our church that private confession is not abolished. In fact, we practice it more than the Catholics do. Exactly the point where you should get it is exactly the rebellion point, right. which somebody will always say, the, the local Missouri Senate thing is, and the pastor is lording it over us, you know, forcing us into this. I'm just like, you know, if you think you're being forced, well, you're being forced into a way better life that looks like Eden, where people love right. each other and live in community, well, I guess... Yeah, why should we force you into that? Right. You know? Right. Which, on the other hand, is exactly why postmoderns, this is last year's study, postmoderns who don't know anything about the, about the church 
are such easy pickings for us because exact, they want exactly that. Yeah. So they want what the church has got, and the, what the, the church people, the church people don't want the, what the church has got, and the world does want what the yeah. church has got. So we, you should all flip ID cards. <laughs> that, that's what you'd have. You should all trade with somebody because that's right. you know. I, and I don't know. I don't know how to get back that until people say, and I include us because when we try to. Our, we have almost, we're almost at the point of desperation trying to find people who, are, who will hear confession from us. Yeah. They have no idea what it means and no idea how to care for us. And it's just, I don't even know how to get out of it until, you know, I'm not going to live long enough to get out of it. It's a very sad thing. Verse 10. I'm not going to say a word. <laughs> Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Okay, just think about that. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. My life has fallen apart. But steadfast love, and I think the Hebrew actually says, but steadfast mercy surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And this, every, almost every psalm we've talked about, we've talked about being enveloped, right? Pastor Bruzek talked about the temple. The temple sort of was sacred space that enveloped David. Uh, you see yourself in Jesus' side. It's sacred space that enveloped you. But steadfast mercy surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, the interesting thing is, in the grammar there of the Hebrew, that rejoice is an imperative. It's an imperative. It's like when, uh, let's see, it's uh, Paul who says uh, in Philippians, uh, just look at Philippians. Flip open to Philippians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You know, in the the scriptures, when you repeat a word twice, that's like, you better listen up. Okay? So he says, St. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, in case you didn't get it, rejoice. And in the psalm here, Psalm 32, you have, be glad and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. That just means rejoice. And rejoice, all you upright in heart. What the psalmist and what um, St. Paul are trying to show is that joy is the mark of the Christian. This point, right here, new life, is defined primarily by joy. It's defined primarily by joy. So if you find people who aren't joyous, who aren't excited, who aren't happy, you see this, right? Don't want to shake your hand, keep your head down, walk by and don't say hello. That means, at least from the marks that we can tell and the marks that Paul has given us and the psalmist have given us, now we're not reading their hearts, we're just looking at the marks. The marks they've given us, it means they're not to this point yet. It's an imperative. The psalmist doesn't say, I hope you'll be joyful. And he also doesn't say, if you think it's a good idea, rejoice. He says, rejoice, exclamation point. Okay? That's the mark of the Christian. That's the mark of the one who finds new life. Now, certainly, you're a Christian here, 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 and here. What is going on back there? (laughs) That's great. That's joy. That kid, man. That kid, was, was he at the Eucharist this morning? Better than crying. That's exactly right. That's joy, okay? I mean, that's why Jesus says, have faith like a child. How old will you be in the resurrection? A child, right? You're going to be like a child. That's what Jesus wants you to be like. He can't get enough of his mom, the church. He can't get enough of the gifts, the Eucharist. 
and he can't get enough of hanging out and having some fun. Joy, new life, that's what it's all about. Let's just end right there. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Uh, well, I, I, I can end whenever you want me to end. I could talk all afternoon, but I could end right now. Well, now I've stopped, so I can't give a big finish. So there's the big finish. No, that was it. That was it. The big finish is joy is the mark of the new life. No, joy is not happiness. Joy is not happiness. Uh, joy is, like everything else in the church, Ruzik and I are given papers at the district conference or district whatever it's called on success in the church. Yeah, you can't wait for this. I mean, here's the thing. If they could have picked any church, they pick us. Think about this, okay? Success in the church. Success, I'm going to lead by saying higher AOR. That's success in the church. <laughs> no, I just covered that up. I covered it up. I'm among friends. No. Success in the church. And, and at one point I say success is defined by Jesus. So nothing is defined in terms of what you think or I think our own environment, culture, experiences, whatever. Joy is defined by Jesus. What does Jesus find joy in? His people, community, suffering, being charitable, being merciful, <laughs> peace, order, harmony, beauty, community, calm, safety, joy, San Diego climate. That's what Jesus finds joy in. Joy is defined by Jesus, so it's defined by Eden. Doesn't mean you're going to be happy all the time. People are still going to die. People are going to get sick. That makes you a little groggy, a little unhappy, a little cranky. However, joy always resides on the far side of forgiveness and new life. It's defined by Jesus. If you can find it in him, you should find it in yourself. That's why the psalmist turns then to the first person, I will instruct you, meaning the Lord. I will teach you. How's he going to teach you? He's going to walk and show you how to walk. All right, what do you got? Here's what you thought. Are you okay? Yes, you may ask. It's as big as that table you're sitting at. Is that a five-foot table? I've been arguing that's a six-foot table, though. You. You could fit in there. That's what Pastor, that's what Pastor Schlecht asked for. He asked for jets in it, so we're honoring his legacy. There'll actually be a bowl. There'll be a bowl in it. Um, I think there was actually, there's one of the more subtle ones. If you look at, there's a, there's a place where they're packing the sand around what looks like a small dome. What I'm guessing that is is going to be inverted, and that will be the bowl. However, the cool part of this is is um, the water will always be alive. That is, in the Didache, which is a very early liturgical manual, probably the earliest one we have, right? 84 A.D., something like that. People argue about when it is. It says, uh, if you have the chance, baptize in living water. For example, the Jordan River was living water. It's moving, and you get the symbolism of things are alive and working. The water's actually going to come down over the sides. It will always be wet on the outside. That'll be a couple of things. One is that kid will want to play in it. We want to encourage that. We want kids to touch it, play in it, like it, love it. It's not going to have that tinkly sound, which the Joy Group so fears, and which I was told not to have. I was told not to have any sound associated because it means too much motion in the congregation. So, but it is, we, it's, we've, we've seen these a couple of places. Uh, it'll be utterly silent. There's enough stickiness on the water that it comes down and goes silently into a drain. So you have this notion that it's alive but quiet, kind of like your baptism. See? 
The big thing you saw with the chain around it is the outer shell. That will sit directly on the floor. So that will emerge out of the floor. Inside will be the short thing. But nevertheless, you could um, dunk a kid like that. Yeah, the those. And real honestly, what we didn't do and what we wish we could have done was several of the churches that we saw this. We've seen this font two or three times, four times. Uh, most of the other ones actually had the grates on the floor removed, and you can't actually immerse people. I, we just didn't think you were there yet. It would have been another $25,000, and it's not a battle we wanted to fight. Yeah, that's what I said. You're not there yet. We're not there yet. Yeah, I mean, if, we, if I said to you... Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you, you, there you go, Mrs. Hanson. More speaking, more honestly than you could ever know, right? So, um, uh, you know, here's the thing: things are happening now, kind of bit by bit. We're about at the point where we get, where we're trying to get permits from the city. Once we get permits from the city, then everything else gets bid. Once everything else gets bid, then things will start to happen. But we have the two big purchases um, are the font. Obviously, we're committed to that since they've done it. The next thing is pews, um, which roughly will look like the ones that have been hanging in my office for months and months, which most people said, yeah, I really like that. They'll be roughly the same shape and color as a picture if you're really curious. And those were just about to sign on the dotted line for that. And of course, that's a huge amount of millwork. Um, some Mennonites in Pennsylvania actually make those. So um, they'll stay warm through the winter because St. John is sending them business. So things will come bit by bit. You'll get the pieces. At some point, I think, Pastor, we probably have to work in Bible study. We're going to have to reintroduce you to some things. For example, there are going to be kneelers on the pews. Okay, so now, here's the thing. Yeah, okay, well, good. So but not everybody will have that reaction. So, you know, so what we're going to need to say to people is, if you want to kneel, you may. If you don't want to kneel, at that point, you actually sit. You sort of sit on the edge of your seat. We're not going to force people to kneel, but we want the possibility of that. You know, another thing we, um, I mean, Bruce Klein, I can't say enough about Bruce Klein. Bruce Klein is there day and night. He's taken a magic marker and marked everything in real time on the floor next door. So we know exactly where everything is going to sit. So we're trying to figure out now exactly, for example, how we're going to go to communion with so many people because there's going to be so much space to commune. We're going to run out of elements before we get around one. So we've got to think about how the, what's going to happen, how we're going to do that. Said, yes, that we could get one of those, or the thing with the beer cans on the hats, yeah. Actually, Gainig's Miter does have the, uh, the beer, and he's got extra host in his crozier. You screw the top off, and the little round wafers come right out. Yes, I, yeah, we might go camel packs. Right. So, I, you know, here's the thing. I just, I'll just tell you, it'll be an advantage to be in Bible study for these sorts of things over the next six months. What we're going to try to do is each time a new thing comes, we're going to try to give it um, by email or by the bulletin. You know, obviously we're not going to vote on every last thing about, you know, what color the tire is going to be or how big the font's going to be, blah, 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 blah. That's actually what we went to school to kind of figure out. Here's another thing you should know. We aimed at $3.5 million. We'll probably get $3 million, so there's a half a million dollar gap. So when somebody says, I didn't get exactly what I want, my reply is going to be, yeah, because you asked for a dollar worth of groceries and you sent me to the store with 80 cents. So you got to kind of remember that unless you give us the whole $3.5 million, you may not get everything like the stained glass moved right away, blah, 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 blah. However, if any of you are so inclined to drop another million or two into the bucket, I do, in fact, know what to do with it. Uh, so uh, anyway, so if you have... 
good reactions, you should talk to people. If you have severe reactions, you should come talk to me, <laughs> uh, and I'll try to help you. But everything's been pretty thought through. And I can just tell you what we're going for. We're going because we don't have a ton of money. You know, the next generation, what we're going for is you'll walk into this space and you'll feel, it should feel warm and intimate. One of the things I'm, I was very surprised at is how close actually the pulpit is to the back row. It actually worked, all the stuff that now that's been marked out. But um, it's going to be different. So we want, what we want you to feel like is, yes, this was worth the bother. And yet, on the other hand, we can't do everything. So you know, that's the parameters in which we're trying to work. So just questions about any of that stuff? Yes. We're going to try to reflect the, the, the jewel tones or the, or the prismatic tones that you see in the stained glass, in the color. So we're going to try to stick with those very rich, deep tones because the hope is that we will get the stained glass moved and we, then we want everything to kind of fit together. So I can tell you, so for example, I can tell you the, the colors should be complementary. For example, the, the pews will be beach and they will have um, a deep cherry into mahogany stain. So it won't be a reddish color into the pink, it'll be a reddish color into the brown. So it's meant to be very, very warm, for example. Um, no, I've never been inside, actually. It's a sin that I confess before you. What is it? Have you been in the new St. Michael's? It'll be a, it'll be, I can show you, actually I can show you the color upstairs, Joan, if you want to see it, you can pop into my office. I can show you the exact few we're ordering. Do they? The what? Yeah, there is a sample of, uh, so here, so for the wall, for example, you know, it's cinder block. They've been working on this substance that will stucco over it. In fact, there's a test kit patch in the back. We may try to, ourselves, stucco the walls with a thin coat to try to relieve that industrial brick-looking thing. And then what we're aiming at is um, the background of the icon of the Virgin Mother and Child at St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice. That's, that's the color I'm aiming at. What it will, you think I'm kidding you, I'm not. I gave him the icon and said this would be the right. So that will be, uh, I could show you at some point a sample, but it's a, it's a gold into silver tone. It's kind of a, a rich tone that's modeled and has some, how would you describe it, Holly? You've seen it. How do you describe what they're trying to do on the wall there? But soft, not like a bright gold, but a soft kind of, we're going for warmth and intimacy as best we can. Ceiling. Ceiling, yes. Probably, well, it won't be bright blue. It should be a deeper blue. That's an old tradition in the church where you sort of look up, and if we're good, we'll paint little gold stars on it. And the notion is that heaven comes to earth in the liturgy. So you look up as if you look up into heaven, or it's as if heaven comes down to you. It's, uh, but I can sh probably show you some examples of that, too. Um, but you have to be careful with that, that it doesn't get too dark. And right now we're sort of playing with the windows, those, how much light will come through the windows. Because we don't really want to replace those windows, but those windows are really awful. Uh, but, well, that's the problem. You know, if you cover them, it gets dark. If you don't cover them, the, the color is so offensive that it ruins all the other cool colors. If you make them clear, it's about a $50,000 pop just to take them out and make them clear. And it's about $350,000 to move the stained glass over. But if you have $350,000, uh, so, so I mean, that's the, you know, sorry? 
if, if I had the money, we would move them today. But the thing is, is we can't, so things kind of go in order. So you have to have pews before you can have the same glass. You have to have an altar and a font before you have, so there's got to be things kind of, we got to fix the air conditioning, which doesn't work presently, you know, those kinds of things. So it's just where, a matter where the money runs up. But yeah, move the stained glass would be a great idea. Would, that, would, that would solve a multitude of problems. Um, it's, it's just a money issue right now for many of those things. So it's just where the congregation chooses to spend their cash. Anything else? Um, we'll try to get stuff out on a fairly timely basis to you, but it's not like new, new big things happen every day. There's usually, you know, we ask for some things, a lot of people bid it, artisans meet, they work with the architect, and then finally a group of, you know, five or six or seven people get together and try to figure out if that's a good purchase. So that's kind of where we are. You're going to start to see those things accelerate now. Um, at some point we'll give you more. I mean, we're, we're near to the kingdom on some things. All right, there you go. I was just curious. <laughs>